the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Have you bought apples from the supermarket or the shop lately? How much do you think the farmer's getting for that? We're going to delve into some of those details shortly on the program today. Be interested in your views. We've talked a lot about the price of lamb at supermarkets lately and how much might be making its way back to the farm as well. Similar thing happening in the world of apples. We'll speak to a grower through those details. Plus, we'll go to the floodgrounds of Gippsland. We'll also talk to Blaze Aid about their plans for that part of the world, asking for help as well. And a whole lot more today on the Country Hour. I'd love your calls, 1300 977 2. You can text as well, 0467 842 This is the Country Hour. It's good to be with you this afternoon. Let's head to rural news. We haven't had it for a few days because there's been so many warnings. Time to update you on what's happening around Australia, including... Maybe some new mangoes for you to enjoy. Jane McNaughton's actually jumped off the bench to help us out on Team Rural today. Good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon, Was, and it's great to be back on the Country Hour. The Agriculture Minister has dismissed a survey by the National Farmers Federation showing that a majority of farmers think the federal Labor government is harming agriculture. 1,600 farmers took part in the survey from the NFF and consulting group Seftons, which showed 54.3% thought current government policies were harming agriculture, while 31.2% say the government is doing a good job for farmers. Here's Federal Agriculture Minister Murray what? I guess what I'm saying is that if you look at the full picture of what's happening with agriculture, there's a range of government actions that have occurred since we came to office that have been for the benefit of the farm sector and we want to continue that. Uh, I don't think everyone's going to agree all the time on everything um, but you know, I think when we when, as I say, when we look at it on the whole uh, I think that there's a lot of really positive things happening for the sector. The number of lambs being slaughtered across Australia is at near record levels with 475,000 slaughtered last week. Meat and Livestock Australia says it's the highest national lamb slaughter since December 2016 when the figure was 489,000 head. Steve Bignall, Market Information Manager for MLA, says the slaughter numbers are historically high. Last year there were only 10 weeks where we processed more than 400,000 and lambs nationally. This year, pretty much since week 17 through to now, bar three weeks, we have been operating above that 400 thousand threshold so uh, we've been operating at those sort of elevated levels for the last five months. We talked about the 2016 record this last week was the fifth highest lamb slaughter on record only four other weeks uh, had higher slaughter and it was the highest um, September figure on record. Australia's biggest horticultural company looks set to change hands and go private in the new year after its board accepted a takeover offer. US based private equity firm Payne Schwartz Partners has offered $3.20 per share, down from an initial offer of $3.50. Financial analyst Sam Barker says the sale of Costa should be completed towards the end of the first quarter of next year. This is an interesting one because um, Payne Schwartz are actually involved in the initial floating of Costa Group back uh, on the stock exchange with the Costa family. So they sold their stake uh, around about 2015 and, and they've come back now to effectively take the business private um, some, uh, well, what will be eight to nine years later. So this is probably a known commodity for for Costa as far as um, the business is concerned. They will have a very good idea how to run this business. So as a result, it's really a back to the future story where um, the original owner, uh, one of the original owners of Costa will be coming, uh, becoming the, uh, the new shareholder and the new owner in, uh, in early next year. And was some good news for mango lovers. Three new varieties of mangoes will hit the supermarket this year. As Matt Bram reports, these have been decades in the making. Around 25 years ago, the National Mango Breeding Program created three new varieties of mango, which promised to taste great, look better, yield better, and have a bunch of other positive attributes. But for years, these mangoes languished on research farms and their commercial rollout was bungled a few times. But last year, the company Mambaloo Mangoes was awarded the commercialisation rights and these mangoes will now be seen in supermarkets this season and they've finally got names. One is called Yes, the Yes Mango. The second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the Yes one is called Aha. 
the latest season one, which comes in after the first two, is called the Now Mango. So we've got Yes, Aha and Now. Um, we think they've got a tremendous future. And was that's it for today's Rural News. Oh, thanks for that, Jane. Yes, Aha and Now. Three new varieties of mangoes heading to the supermarket shelves. Which one would you eat? I think I'm more an Aha guy, just going off the names. Aha uh-huh, sounds a bit better than yes and now. You can let me know what you think. Send a text 0467 842722. Whilst you're checking out the new mangoes at supermarkets, check out the price of apples. What are you paying at the supermarkets for apples at the moment? What is being paid there and what is flowing through to the grower are two separate things, and it's making times difficult for those growing the crops in this state. Kevin Sanders is an apple grower in the Yarra Valley. He says, although the price of apples is quite high on the shelves, growers aren't seeing the returns. Oh, I think the industry is doing it a bit tough, which is surprising. Well, not surprising, but it is tough at the moment. A lot of growers are struggling. It's been, whilst the prices are good, sales are slow in apples. In pears, uh, prices aren't good and, and sales are diminishing. So it's tough in the category at the moment. Yeah. So people aren't buying apples at the moment? Yeah, I think, well, there's been some improved margins uh, at retail level, let's say, and, and that's discouraging people. Uh, seems an odd thing to do in, while there's a cost of living crisis go on that generally margins have increased at retail level and yeah, it just seems surprising to me that people aren't looking after both the consumers and the growers at the same time. Just looking online, Kevin, at some of the prices that people do pay on the supermarket shelves for apples, you know, some popular brands like the Granny Smith apples are $5.50 per kilo. What what do growers make wholesale on that type of apple? Well, we're not making $3 a kilo. We're probably making somewhere about two fifty, two seventy a kilo. And the rest is retail margin. And that's one of the difficulties we have, you know, Fruit's selling slowly for us, and a variety like Granny Smith's is selling quite slowly. It's because it's got a reasonably high um, retail rate, and that's slowing people's, you know, impulse buying, as we call it, and that's having an effect on us. But, I mean, at wholesale level, you know, at, at less than $3 a kilo, like, we're not making any money out of it. And so, so supermarkets in the space of like seven days will make that $3 profit margin, but growers don't even see that in 18 months. Well, that's precisely right. Exactly. You know, our costs are amortised over the full, you know, 12 to 18 months that it takes us to get fruit up to the consumer. And then, uh, you know, that's how long it takes us to get our money back. But, you know, it's a difficult process for the grower. He's got, you know, his, his margin is quite small, like really small. If it costs us $2.50 to grow the fruit and we're selling them at $3, there's our margin, you know. And the rest is retail margin, as we call it. So... Potentially 50 cents margin for growers. Yeah, for 18 months' work, yeah. The public sees the price go up and they assume that the growers are getting... And, and wrongly, they assume the growers are getting more money, which they're probably not disappointed about, but the money isn't flowing through to the growers at any level on a regular basis. You, you spoke a little about the pear industry. I've spoken to growers who have taken out trees this season because they are simply not making any money from them. What's happening in the apple industry? Uh, it's not quite so dangerous in the apple industry, although there will be a number of growers that, that exit the industry with current conditions. The pear industry is in dire straits, realistically. They've been pulling out pears for a number of years, and while their volume goes down and down and down at the retail level, um, there's not a lot of support, and it's really difficult for the pear growers. It really is. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how they're coping, uh, both mentally and financially. I think mentally it's probably just as big an issue as financially. You know, you get a bit tired of persistently low prices and it does take uh, take some getting over mentally. Yeah, you know, some of our costs, you know, labour, well, people don't understand how the labour costs can go up 20%. That's basically what our labour content, 20 to 35% uh, in the last 12 months. So depending upon how you structure your business, it's a pretty big cost when labour's, you know, a very big part of what our business uh runs on you know operating costs are somewhere in the region of 60 percent of our 60 to 65 percent of our total costs are in labor and uh you know we're big labor people so you know we've got to find a way around that yeah i'm not not sure yet how but you know somewhere along the way robotics will turn up you've been growing apples since you were a child basically 
what have you noticed over that time? Uh, uh, is it just getting worse? Oh, I think it doesn't matter what, what farmer you are. The system's just not geared towards farmers making money anymore. I mean, farming as a community isn't shrinking because farmers get sick of it. It's shrinking because there's no bloody money in it. You know, the number of people in our industry that are under 40, I could probably count, you know, of the people I know, and I know plenty in the industry, the number of younger people that are under 40, I could count probably beyond, you know, maybe a couple of hands and I would maybe not need to get my shoe off, but I wouldn't need to get both shoes off. And the number of people under 20, I don't need two hands to count. So, you know, it's a pretty tough game when your kids won't get into it. I mean, my brothers and I have got quite a number of children and out of all of them, not one of them wants to be an apple farmer, I can assure you. That's Yarra Valley apple grower Kevin Sanders speaking there with Eden Henninen. We did contact major supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths, for comment in regards to the price discrepancies. Uh, we've got statements from both. I can read some of them to you now. This is from Coles. We are committed to working towards a sustainable future that supports local farmers and food producers to ensure our farmers and suppliers are paid fairly. We have strong long-term partnerships with numerous apple growers across Australia where we work closely with them when it comes to transparency on costs. We source our fruit through a mixture of direct growers as well as suppliers who in turn set the price paid to their growers. When it comes to the price of our fruit, we can assure customers it reflects the cost of the raw ingredients. We pay our suppliers in addition to the cost of factors such as processing, transport, labour, packaging and other costs associated with getting a product ready to go on the shelves for our customers to enjoy. That's from Coles. This is from Woolworths. And I quote, We pay the market price for fresh produce and we're currently paying our apple suppliers more for their fruit than 12 months ago. We're always working to strike the right balance so suppliers receive a fair price and our customers have access to high-quality and affordable fresh produce. We'll continue to work closely with our suppliers to understand variations in the market and collaboratively manage industry-wide challenges. End quote. You can tell us what you think about that. You're more than welcome to send a text, 0467 Let's go back to our coverage of the large amount of rainfall and the floods that have been uh, around areas of northeast Victoria and Gippsland. We'll go to Gippsland now, downstream of Lake Glen Maggie in the McAllister River, where uh, communities continue to work uh, around that water that has flowed through their properties. Uh, out on one is Stephen Dwyer, who's a dairy farmer at Newry. He took Emma Field on a tour of what had happened to his property. So yesterday morning I was milking the cows to about 7.30 and I'm thinking this, this is really flooding rain. So I looked on my, uh, on my phone and I saw flood warnings from the Bureau of Meteorology for a major flood at La Cola. So I text through to Southern Rural Water because I looked on my phone and I thought, well, that's a strange thing. There's no flooding downstream of Lake Glenmaggie. And I knew Lake Maggie was full because it had been full for the, for the um, irrigators. Um, I then text through to Southern Rural Water to say, what's happening? How many releases have you got? And the answer came back at 4,500 megalitres. And I text back and said, there's a major flood on the McAllister River at La Cola. You, you need to have this weir at at least a minor flood level. And they said, well, we're working on that now when we'll have a meeting and then we'll get back to you, so. So you've seen the data that's come out. They were at 5,000 yesterday morning. They increased it slightly to 7.5, then to 10. My reaction was when they increased it from 4,000 to 5,500, what's the point? It's such a small amount for a major flood on the McAllister River at La Cola, which is 30, 40, 50,000 megalitres to be a major flood, to be dropping it by 4,000 megalitres when that water's coming into the weir was just hopeless. It was a waste of time. Um, they should have been dropping it well before the water got to the weir. They should have attempted to drop it as the rain was falling at La Cola because they knew there was a massive amount coming. So the fact that they didn't, what has been the impact to this region? The impact has been, particularly on the townships of Newry and Tanamba, they, they've been inundated unnecessarily. Farmers are kind of used to it, dare I say it, on the river. We know we're going to get some kind of a flood. Um, we're not 
We're not used to it when we don't need to be used to it, though. And if they could have kept this at, say, 30,000 megalitres, everyone would have been OK. And they could have done that quite easily by pre-releasing this water. Our neighbour next door has had uh, cattle washed up on his property. I've had pumps that go gone under. The CFA's been out all night, volunteers, um, sandbagging properties, all those people, they, they've got lives to live. They, they don't need to be doing this sort of thing. And um, in terms of Southern Rural Waters management, what do you want to see going forward? My father went through this years ago. My father said we had interviews with him after the 1971 flood and they assured of after that they had filled the weir up and then just let it go. And from that day on they said, no, we won't do it again. If we can pre-release, we will pre-release. When we had Clinton Rotter, the same thing happened. We got to the 2007 flood and the same thing happened. The, the weir was filled right up and then they released it when it was full. And um, they learned from their mistakes and then there's a change and there was a change for a good few years. And it seems we're back to square one. We, we're back to the, the good old days where we're looking after the farmers who, who sit there and just want their irrigation water. But the reality is they're gonna get it anyway. No one's gonna be irrigating them for two or three weeks. And that weir will fill and refill and refill the amount of water that's going through it now can, can fill that weir completely from dry to, to full in four days. And what about health concerns with the cattle? Um, well, the, the cattle have done surprisingly well. Uh, we have grain and we have, we have silage left over and we have hay left over, so we, we've done all right. There are other people who aren't so, so fortunate as what we are, um, but we've still had some dry land on this property to keep our cattle on. This is great rain and it's probably, dare I say it, almost a good flood in that it hasn't done a lot of damage. It seems to have stayed out of most houses and, and the good it does to the district is, is immense, you know, and it saves us all from irrigating as well. But it, it brings a lot of uh, nutrients to the soil as well, so it's not all bad. That's Stephen Dwyer, dairy farmer in Newry, speaking to Emma Field. And that goes to what we've been speaking about on the country hour for the last couple of days. It's good, bad and ugly with this uh, amount of rain and it varies on where you are, what you're farming and the impact on your business as well. Speaking of the clean-up, though, uh, Blaze Aid, the uh, rural charity that helps clean up and rebuild fences in agriculture in response to natural disasters, are already working on setting up a camp in Gippsland, yet another camp in Gippsland, as we'll get to. Melissa Jones is the CEO of Blaze Aid, and she spoke to me earlier today. Oh, goodness, Warwick, haven't we hit the ground running? Um, have you ever seen anything like it? I certainly haven't, um, where we've had, you know, a fire uh, and, you know, Blaze Aid sort of sat back and started to prepare for fires and then all of a sudden the floods hit, which seemed to be a little bit more um, damaging to farming farming areas around uh, Gippsland than, than the fires. It's been huge, hasn't it? Does that, I suppose, before we, we talk about the specifics that you're doing here, does that, does that make you concerned, I suppose, about the year ahead? You're looking at the summer ahead here? Yeah, for sure. Look, we've been, as everybody is, uh, I'm sure, watching and listening um, all year about the summer ahead and the summer to come. So um, we've spent a lot of the quiet time, what we call the quiet time, which is, you know, out of disaster season, preparing and getting our trailers stocked and ready um, and, you know, processes and procedures in place so that we can just snap into gear when we need it. Uh, however, you know, it, it's still been a shock that things have started so early, I guess. You know, you, you sort of, um, you can never be prepared for Mother Nature when it happens like this, I guess. Yeah. And so what are your plans or what are you doing in the Gippsland area specifically now? Mm. So it's very early, but we have had one call um, to say that we will be needed. And as you know, Warwick, you know, Blaze Aid is a uh, skin in the game sort of organisation where we, we need to be invited into a community to to set up a base camp and start work. So we have had that call and we really now need to sort of ascertain firstly needs within the community. But really our belief uh, is that there'll be double the amount of properties affected compared to last time we are in Hayfield. So we really need property owners to come forward and, and just let us know their needs so that we can plan um, for the months ahead. Um, and, you know, the probably the 
the most used statement um, we hear in Blaze Aid here is from farmers, and, and that's like, Joe down the road needs more help than I do. But we also know that that terrible feeling of having so much work to do within such short time frames, those sort of feelings of dread and overwhelmingness, if that's a word, they really come to the surface. And, and that's what Blaze Aid can help with um, as far as property owners go. And we're, we're here to ease that stress and anxiety for farming families that are affected by these disasters. So so if you need help, just, no matter how big or small, get in contact with Blaze Aid now. Absolutely. And, you know, knowing that we're going to have a camp up and running um, at this stage in Hayfield, um, also a big call out for volunteers. We can't get what we need done without our volunteers who are really the core um, and the beating heart of Blaze Aid. So uh, call out for farmers to come forward and they can contact um, myself on um, my phone numbers everywhere, but it's um, 0436 316 955 or they can get in contact with us uh, email on at admin at blazeaid.com.au so we can get things rolling. And so the plan is at this stage to set up a camp in Hayfield? Yes, yes. Um, same spot as we were a couple of years ago, um, which is a really good central place um, to help the, the whole district, people in the whole district. Um, and uh, I, th I think it's the tennis club, actually, um, where we were before the sports ground anyway in Hayfield. Um, that's what we're looking at initially. Uh, that's not being confirmed yet because it's only early days. Uh, so just getting those numbers of, of people who need help um, and and farmers to put themselves forward and then getting our volunteers and we'd be right to go. How quickly, or, or what's the timeline, I suppose, from here for setting up a camp, do you think? Yeah, good question. Look, given that it's floods, although we will have some um, initial reports say we will have fire-affected properties as well, um, it usually takes a couple of weeks for properties to dry out enough for us to um, get out there and start work. So we're probably looking, whilst we can, you know, be there in the next days, couple of days, it's probably likely to be about two weeks before um, farmers are ready for us to come and help. So that's our sort of timeline at the moment. And I suppose one of the, the good things in a way is you've been in these communities in Gippsland before, haven't you? Like Gippsland is an area where Blaze Aid has been many times over recent years. Yes, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about the camps we've had in Gippsland, Mafra and Hayfield and Bunyip, um, Yanar and Bucken. So we've had quite a few in the area and, it, and it's a lovely thing because what we notice is that uh, we often get a lot of local volunteers coming in and, um, you know, that doesn't happen all around Australia. It's it's sort of a little bit unique to Victoria and, and particularly to Gippsland. So um, the community support is amazing and it really keeps us going. So it's it's wonderful. We know what we're doing. We know the area um, and we, we know these people have been hit before. So um, our heart really does go out to them. Um, and we're here to help. Well, best of luck to you. Uh, if people want to volunteer or if they need assistance, they can go and register with you. Um, Melissa Jones, thanks very much for joining us. Is there anything else we need to know? No, thank you so much, Warwick. Um, just check out our website if um, if you like more information, blazeaid.com.au, um, and we're always um, grateful for donations during this time. It does cost us around about $5,000 a week to run a base camp, so any funding we get in um, helps with that too, and, and that money goes directly to where it's needed. So appreciative of any help um, that Victorians or anyone can give us. Thank you. That's Melissa Jones, CEO of Blaze Aid, heading to Hayfield to set up camp to deal with recovery of fires and floods in the Gippsland region. Well, when you rattle off the amount of Gippsland camps there have been in recent years, there's certainly been a few for Blaze Aid, but uh, certainly a need yet again and a call to, to register if you can help or if you need help, blazeaid.com.au is their website. You're listening to The Country Outwork along with you. After... 
the uh, news and weather. We'll have a look at abalone viral gangliomuritis because uh, there may be some good news on that herpes-like disease in abalone that has been detected off the southwest coast of Victoria. More on that coming up shortly. Plus more of your texts, 0467 842 722. If you'd like to send them through right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Shamsia Hussainpour again. Good afternoon, Shamsia. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news. The rain may have stopped, but water levels in Sale and Barnsdale are continuing to rise. Residents living around the port of Sale have been evacuated overnight, while those in Barnsdale are being urged to move to higher ground. With the Mitchell River downstream of Glenadale expected to reach a moderate flood level of 6.6 metres later today. It follows significant flooding in Newry, Tanumba and Tanumba West, with locals from these towns unable to return home as a number of roads are still inundated. Liberal member of Liberal member for Eladen Cindy McLeish says a rethink is needed on the strategy of managing water levels in Lake Eladen during spring. Under the current plan, Goulburn Murray Water aims to um, have levels in high, sorry, uh, have levels in Lake Eldon close to 100% by 1st of October. Miss McLeish says the balance between having water stored for irrigation over summer and mitigating flood risks in spring is hard to find. The Victorian government has announced it is extending the state's e-scooter trial for another six months to gather data about scooter use over the warmer summer uh, and determine future regulations. City of Ballarat is the only regional council to host the trial, with three other trial areas in Melbourne. A hire company has been operated shared e-scooters in Ballarat since December 2021 and private e-scooters were added to the trial earlier this year. A pea plater who was so drunk he vomited before causing a fatal head-on collusion in southeast Victoria has been sentenced. The 23-year-old Kane Mueller pleaded guilty to culpable driving causing death and was sentenced to seven years and two months imprisonment with a four-year and four-month non-parole period in the Melbourne County Court this morning. The court heard Mueller had drunk at least eight beers, hit a street sign and vomited before deciding to drive home on November 18, 2022. He killed Portman he killed Portland man Michael Gill when he drove onto the wrong side of the Princess Highway in Lyons. For more news at any time, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Back to you, Warwick. Thanks, Shamsia. Uh, regional news headlines for you there. Uh, Weather Bureau about to come up. Just on the story today, when we're looking at Apple prices and profit margins, I've read those statements from Coles and Woolworths. Quick text from a couple of you. Tom says, oh, of course, Woolworths say they pay the market price. They play a huge part in setting that price. Give me strength, says Tom. And Dan says, uh, in relation to Coles' statement, actually, transport, labour, packaging, logistics, profit margin, all forcing down the price paid to the farm. Hard to solve via the market, says Dan, with a sighing emoji attached to that as well. Uh, Also someone wanting to send us a a letter they've sent to the government over the management of Glen Maggie Dam. You can certainly email us anytime at the country at countryhour, all one word, at abc.net.au. Countryhour at abc.net.au if you want to send us an email at the country hour we'd love to get more of your thoughts coming in from you whether it be something in a little bit more detail or something like a letter you'd like to copy us in on somewhere where you think we should go or be reporting from country hour at abc.net.au to send us an email michael efron is a senior forecaster at the weather bureau can take us through the weather situation for today as we continue to monitor what's happening flooding wise in areas but a lot of that Flood and rainfall has moved on, hasn't it? Michael, have we got sunny skies today? G'day, Warwick. Well, uh, through northern parts of the state, uh, we do have a fair amount of sunshine, uh, but in the south, it's still reasonably cloudy with uh, some shower activity, as well in a a southerly airstream as a a large high moves south of the bite. But in terms of the flooding situation, still... uh, quite a few uh, warnings out. We have a major flood warning for the Broken River, 
also a moderate flood warning for the Mitchell, Thompson, Latrobe, Yarra, Kiwa, Ovens and King, and also the Seven Creeks, and then a minor flood warning for the Bunyip, uh, Goulburn and McAllister rivers. So uh, we're just seeing uh, those uh, waters slowly moving downstream, uh, and as we can see with the, the broken, um, expecting uh, major flooding there, uh, but those waters in, in some places um, going to just uh, take a, a while to recede. Uh, but the good news is that we're not expecting uh, any significant rainfall uh, over those flood-affected areas uh, over uh, the next, uh, next little while. So for the rest of today, still looking at pretty cool conditions with temperatures in the south at around 13 to 16 degrees, uh, mid to high teens across the north. We still have a sheep graziers warning out uh, for all districts as well. And so as we head into the weekend, uh, we're going to see that high south of the bite just move very slowly east. So Saturday, Sunday and Monday, not a lot of change. We'll just see some isolated light showers in the south with fairly cool conditions continuing. Uh, in the north, looking at partly cloudy or mostly sunny conditions and temperatures uh, each day reaching around 18 to 20 degrees perhaps uh, cold enough each morning for some patchy frost, but uh, I don't think that will be uh, too extensive. And then on Tuesday, we uh, finally see that high crossing the state. So Tuesday looking settled across Victoria, apart from a, a light shower or two quite early in the day near the coast. Uh, um, and we'll see those temperatures starting to increase as well, 25 at Mildura elsewhere tops of around 18 to 21 degrees, so very settled on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, that high moves to the east and we see northerly winds developing, sunny conditions expected after early uh, morning fog and frost. Temperatures are around the low to mid-20s, reaching 27 to 29 in the far northwest. And then on Thursday, we do see another frontal system crossing the state. This state's looking uh, fairly fast-moving, uh, so not expecting significant totals out of that, perhaps uh, 2 to 10 millimetres in the south. Lighter falls across the north, so pretty fast-moving front. Quite windy as well, especially over elevated parts. Ahead of that, uh, reasonably mild temperatures, 20 to 25 degrees, even up to 27 uh, at Mildura. And then on Friday, a west to southwesterly airstream continues with a few showers in the south and quite cool conditions. So... Uh, good news there in, in terms of um, a lack of rainfall, although I know that a lot of western and southwestern Victoria have actually... Yeah, you've got to be uh, careful, don't you? That, yeah, you, yeah, there's some areas that are still still desperate for rainfall, um, so it's been a, quite a contrast. You look at the east and the northeast, uh, some parts in excess of 200 millimetres, and over the west and southwest, less than uh, 10 or 15 millimetres, so... Uh, yeah, big difference there. Yeah, and in terms just of, of that, uh, Michael, those sort of system looking out for next week, is that going to bring sort of any sort of rain? That... Yeah, I think it's one, you would call it a regulation cold front around oh, like 2 that. to 10 millimetres over southern and mountain parts, lighter falls through our northern districts. And with the, the system that's just gone through, we had a low-pressure system deep and then become quite slow-moving but this front next week is really fast-moving with no real link-up to any tropical moisture, so wouldn't expect significant totals with that. And how cold are those frosts going to, to be? You, you mentioned a few warnings that could be there, but are we talking significant frost here? I don't think so. I think it's quite marginal. So uh, we're looking at temperatures down to maybe uh, 1 or 2 degrees through the, the north and maybe parts of the west. So uh, really marginal, not expecting anything around minus two, minus three uh, in those areas. And the frost, uh, not the frost warning, the uh, sheep graziers warning, obviously, Karen, at the moment, is it likely there'll be some more of those across the weekend too? I think we'll see that easing. So uh, probably just in place for the rest of today and Saturday and then uh, unlikely to continue beyond that. And I've just noted that uh, my colleagues have actually issued a frost warning uh, for tomorrow morning for the Wimmera and Northern Country, North East and East Gippsland forecast districts. 
Ripper. Well, Michael, <laughs> we just had you read the warnings. We'd still be here, I suppose. There is a lot, lot of happening weather-wise, a lot happening over the next few days. Thank you so much for, for taking us through it, especially as we move into the weekend. Much appreciated. No worries. Thanks, Warren. Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through uh, the full forecast and the full warning, warning forecast there by the time we go through all the rivers and the frost and the sheep graziers and even a few marine warnings too. There is a lot to have a look at weather-wise at the moment. Uh, you're listening to the Country Hour. It is 20 to 1. Let's get into the waterways right now. Abalone divers are breathing a sigh of relief after surveillance dives have not turned up evidence of abalone viral gangliomyritis since a detection in mid-August. That detection came more than 12 months ago after it was previously found following an outbreak earlier in 2021. That outbreak resulted in a halving of the western zone quota for abalone, bringing the total catch down to barely a tenth of what it was before the disease was first detected in these waters way back in 2005. Craig Fox is an abalone diver and chair of the Western Abalone Divers Association. He says it's been a nerve-wracking time for those in the industry. So since um, around the mid to late August, there was a detection found of AVG-positive abalone in the Point Danger area in Portland that a, a um, Portland resident had found. So we put a fisheries notice in place pretty much overnight, which um, people are well aware of now. Unfortunately, I've had to do it a couple of times. But since then, the area has been closed off to all activities, um, be both commercial fishing and diving, um, crayfishing and recreational fishing. We've since since then we've obviously been doing lots of surveillance in there, um, and our last dive in there is only only a few weeks ago. Angus has, has come back. All the testing and all the sampling we've done in there, and all the all the dive surveillance has come back with a, a negative result, which is which is great. Um, and we think we might have had an isolated pocket that has flared up for for some unknown reason. But by putting that control order in, we, it looks like we've um, kept it to that little area and it's it's burnt itself out. And Craig, heading out into the water to do those dives, you must have been filled with dread, mustn't you, that, that you might perhaps detect more of the virus or perhaps even a, a substantial amount of it? Yeah, it's always um, nerve-wracking, this type of diving for us, Angus, and it's very confronting. You know, unfortunately, we've come across it a lot now that it's established in our zone, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, back previously, it had never been seen in this area before 2005. So it is confronting, um, but on, the, on this occasion... You know, with what we've learnt over the years by being able to shut an area down completely with the support of the VFA and the the general public in Portland to have been fantastic, the community and all other stakeholders, you know, that has controlled it. But it is nerve-wracking getting in and you're not you're not sure what you're going to see. You could see total devastation. And on this occasion, we've been fortunate that we haven't been able to find it um, active. At the moment, we're, we're feeling, um, you know, confident that we have kept it that little area. It's a tiny little pocket. And Craig, this latest detection was in an area adjacent to a, a region of the, the reef where it was first detected a couple of years ago, and there's a, a, a existing control zone in that area as well. But as far as you know, is there also no no virus present at the moment in that area too? Yeah, that's right, Angus. Like we do, we do um, do regular dive um, surveillance in that area as well. So that's the broader area to the west of Portland, and we we've sampled that that area recently as well, and they have all come back um, with a negative negative result. So we're very happy about that, and the stock numbers look look good, and they're coming back through, and it just shows that you know industry led we we have shut that zone to 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 help it rebuild, and it, and it is coming back strongly. So we're buoyed by that. Okay, so erring on the side of caution, the, the new control area, that restrictions will remain in place until mid-November and, and the existing area, that will be closed off until mid-next year? Correct, yeah, that's correct. So the control area around Point Danger, that'll stay in effect till we'll let that fisheries notice run its course, which is November 15. Obviously, we'll do some more diving in there you know, before that and some more testing, but from what we've seen, we're confident and it's best to, to just, just um, visit it not regularly, you know. It's best to stay out of there, um, but we we will have another look before that that notice um, finishes and do some more sampling, and we'll make a decision then with the VFA. Tricky one, isn't it? Because uh, as you've said before, it's endemic, and it and it could just present itself without 
any really obvious causes? Yeah, well, now that it's established here, it is a real worry for us, you know, uh, every time we enter the water. But what we are seeing and what we do believe, we, you know, there's still a lot of research to be done on this disease. It's still very early days on the research part. We don't really understand what sets it off. We know it's a stress-related event, um, but whether that's big seas, water temperature or the like, you know. So we're still trying to put our finger on that on the, on the that one to, to figure it out. But the best that we can do is when we do find a flare-up, uh, put the control orders in place to stop the spread, and that, that's, that's the only way we can protect the fishery and, and, the, um, and the environment. That's Craig Fox, abalone diver and chair of the Western Abalone Divers Association, speaking there to Angus Verley for your latest update on abalone viral ganglioneuritis. Uh, you're listening to The Country Hour. Angus has been busy fella this week out on the road and has been at the Birch of Cropic Group event this week. Looking at scientific breakthroughs and, and what scientific breakthroughs could shape the future of agriculture. Michael Robertson, CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Director, addressed that question. He says, well, breakthroughs can seem sudden, they typically come after many years of work. Often when we talk about science, we do think that breakthroughs happen very quickly and we have high expectations about discoveries leading to practical outcomes for people very quickly. But often in science, particularly in agriculture, where it's a complex system, it can often take 20 years from that initial bright idea or discovery about something to when you see an outcome, say, in the hands of a farmer. You said there should be a focus on, on you use the phrase, breaking tech lock-ins? Yeah, we call this technology lock-ins where farming has evolved to be um, matched with particular sets of technologies it uses. So, for example, grain growing in Australia has very much evolved to be monoculture crops grown in large paddocks with big machinery. And if you think about maybe different sorts of technologies being available for farmers, you then opens up possibilities about whether some of those ways in which we grow grain, for example, could be quite different. Now, some practical breakthroughs you talked about, things like uh, on-farm energy generation and then related to that on-farm chemical production, fertiliser production. I, I noticed a lot of interest in the room when you, when you spoke about those things. How realistic are they and how far away do you think they are? There is work underway at the moment funded by the GRDC looking at small-scale mobile on-farm production of, say, urea fertiliser that would be obviously created through um, energy being generated on that farm as well. You can see there's possibilities here that aren't too far away. CRISPR, you mentioned, that's a, a gene editing technology for people who aren't familiar with it. I think you said there is some some reluctance in some sectors to wade into the CRISPR area, but do you, you see a role for CSIRO there? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, there's a few issues here. One is that there are there's still a little bit of murkiness about the regulatory pathway for getting these uh, new genetic technologies into crops and approved. So that means that often companies doing breeding for the grains industry um, are holding back a bit. Second thing is that if they were to go overseas and use, say, an international provider to do it for them, there's issues there around how you then bring that material back into Australia. And so this then opens up the question, well, could CSIRO step in here and provide an opportunity to, to bring those new technologies more quickly to market to benefit grain growers? plant protein obviously it's a big growth market and a big interest in it in in the cropping zones that we have a plant protein facility in Horsham for example what what do you see as the future in, in that sector well we know for a fact um, the world population and its dietary needs means we're going to need to produce more protein and just producing it from farm animals won't be enough we need to think about growing the plant protein part of that too um, so there's a real opportunity here for traditional commodity producers of pulses in Australia to have a new line of business that might involve grains being used to extract um, new isolates, new um, forms of protein to be used as food ingredients. And you're right, there are companies already doing this in Australia. They're needing help to scale, um, both from the processing side of it, but also sourcing enough stock from farmers as well of the right quality. Now that's plant protein. You also talked about traditional protein sources, red meat, and about the fact that a large majority of the value from an animal comes from a small amount of the meat, and a, and a large amount of the meat is actually quite low valued. Just summarise for me a project that you're involved with 
looking at increasing the value of, of some of that meat. Yeah, this is thinking about alternative uses for that lower value part of the carcass that maybe traditionally would go into something like, say, a pet food or some other form of low value product. We've been looking at whether we can take that meat from the lower value part of the carcass, dry it, powder it, remove the meaty flavours from it and some of the other things that you don't want and using it as a protein, soluble protein extract that could go in as an ingredient into various food and drink products. And a lot of excitement from the meat industry around this. The importance of agriculture spruiking its enviro credentials, you just... Uh, you referenced a recent recognition that uh, Australian canola got from the EU. How important is it to be constantly promoting those environmental standards that we have here in Australia? Oh, vitally important. It's not just promotion, though. It's also doing the science to help underpin those claims as well. And that's why uh, that's that's where we we can help out. We can bring the data and the calculations to bear to help with that process. And then it's up to the industries themselves to then promote those credentials in markets to ensure we still have market access and the licence to continue to produce and export food. Soil carbon is is such a buzzword at the moment. You received some questions along the lines of it and whether farmers individually should be focusing on it or whether there's an opportunity there for them. What what are your views on it? Well, I think farmers need to be keeping an eye on it. It's It's an agenda that's not going to go away. I think they need to be thinking broadly about the range of options they could be looking at around their greenhouse gas footprint and the, and the, and the carbon markets they can participate on. That won't only be to do with soil management, they could also be to do with energy use on farm, it could be to do with livestock. I think it's probably fair to say carbon farming is, um, is still an evolving space, the market is still an evolving space and I'm not surprised sometimes farmers feel confused and so I don't blame the fact that they're holding back in many cases. We've got to keep bringing the science to bear there though and showing what's possible realistically under feasible farming practices. Because in a, in a cropping scenario when you're, you're growing annual crops you grow them, you harvest them, you grow them again so you've got that sort of ebb and flow of uh, carbon sequestration. Yeah that's right. The bald fact around particularly say grain production is of the biomass you're producing every year you're removing about half of it already at harvest in the grain. Of the remaining bit some of it's going to rot and die and blow away, some of it's going to be taken by termites, some of it's going to be removed in other ways. And so what's left, including the roots underground, is all you've really got to work with in terms of putting into the soil. And then, of course, of what you then put into the soil, only some of that will be retained in the long term. So there's, there's a whole lot of sort of basic facts here around what's possible to achieve given the constraints we have around our farming systems. And, Michael, the digital space, uh, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, tech and and uh, the digital world didn't really play much of a role in agriculture. Now, in that short time to this point, it plays a huge role. So that's only going to continue to grow at at an exponential pace, isn't it? Yeah, it'll be both data, data you can use to make decisions, but it'll be automation as well. So automation of machinery, automation of data capture... Uh, will all play a role. I mean, we've seen how data just uh, digital has touched our everyday lives, regardless of whether we're involved in agriculture or not, and agriculture will be no different. That's Michael Robertson, CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Director, speaking there with Angus Verley. And to finish this week on The Country Hour, shearing instructors are noticing a lot of young students interested in taking up the profession despite problems in the industry. Stuart Neal and Tom Kelly say despite low livestock prices and difficult conditions for farmers, many are still going through shearing schools in the hopes of entering that part of the workforce. Eden Hennenen had a chat with the instructors yesterday at the Elmore Field Day in central Victoria. We still get the same interest. Plenty of people coming to the schools just to give it a try because they hear about the money and they know the shortage is here and the sooner we train up all our own people instead of relying on offshore labour, the easier it's going to be here to keep the season going. Tom, you were just talking about that, uh, the New Zealand shearers. There aren't as many as there used to be. No, no they, don't, they don't have near the sheep numbers that they used to have, so they, yeah, they haven't got the workforce sort of waiting um, for the opportunities in Australia that they used to used to have in the past. So, yeah, we've got to get um, pretty proactive and maintain our pathways and our training programs to, you know, to keep our industry stable there. And are you seeing the kids that do come through your school, are you seeing a flow-on effect? Do they all go into the industry? 
Uh, not everyone goes in, but normally the ones that have already had a little bit of a go, they stay with it, you know. But some of them, shearing's not for them. Like, shearing's not for everyone. But there's still plenty of work in the industry. Like, the industry's actually calling out more for wool handlers than they are for shearers at the moment. So as long as they stay in the industry, we don't mind, as long as we give them in the, keep them in the industry, because that's what we want. We've been hearing recently on the Country Hour that some... Uh, shearers are twiddling their thumbs at the moment because of the seasonality of the work and that yeah. it's kind of turned from what conditions were like a year or so ago. Yeah, well see with the drop in um, the mutton prices and the lamb prices, you know, like a few people got a little bit, you know, they're getting 200 bucks for their lambs, you know, next thing they'd advertise they'd pay 5 or 6 bucks to get their lamb shorn whereas this year they're not going to pay that money to get their lamb shorn, the lamb's only going to make 60 bucks they'll sell them in the wool, you're not going to have the people in the feedlots and the old ewes, like you've got an old ewe there and she's a composite ewe, she's got $4 worth of wool on her. Cost you $4 or more to get a shorn and then you've got to wait another few months to sell her to get the skin value or it's $3.50 to dump the bare skin, you know. So all those sheep are going to market with the wool on, which makes a difference. Just look at these sheep that we've got here next to me. Like last year they would have been $200 sheep, you know, as carcass to be sold and probably cut you 60 odd dollars worth of wool. This year might have $30 worth of wool and probably a $20 carcass, you know, so that's what we're up against. That's the way things have changed. And we're at the Elmore uh, field day today. Has it affected the number of exhibitors? I guess it's not so much focused on sheep here, but how does it affect the industry coming to these kinds of events? Well, the wet weather has definitely kept a few away and um, there's probably a little bit of money tightening up too. Like, it looks well round here, but, you know, other people from away that come to have a look will... They've probably just got to sit on their hands a little bit just at the moment. Like if you're used to selling your young weathers like that and now you're nearly giving them away, you know, so it's a, that's a big difference. Mm. Big, uh, big haircut. Yeah. What, are, what is Shira saying to you? Yeah, well, they're going to, they're wondering, you know, because now it's coming a bit droughty where I am in East Gippsland, so a lot of those weathers have gone to market, you know, so then straight away there's two or three days at each shed that you haven't got. And they said, what are we going to do? I said, well, that's what you've just got to work something out. You've got to get on the telephone. Yeah. And are you, like you said, are people moving into different areas, like wool handling? Or? Yeah, I know. the shearers don't normally go to the wool handling side of it, but um, you know, they'll, if we lose them out of the industry, that's a thing. They go and get a job doing something else. You won't get them back if they go and get a job fencing. But money's sort of going to tighten up a little bit just for a little while, so there won't be that other work. They'll have to probably travel a little bit to, um, to secure the work. Speaking of Gippsland, lots going on in that area at the moment. You're in Lindenau. Mm. In East Gippsland, what's happening there? Yeah, so fires all day. Uh, fire started there on Saturday, and uh, so fires there for a few days, and um, and now sixty something mil of rain there overnight and today. So it's all gone again. So just yeah, got every every season we want down there. Yeah, and you're here in Elmore. In I'm here in Elmore, Central Vic. What, yeah. what what's happening over at your property? Yeah, I got a lot of phone calls. Would add twenty more phone calls, you know, from my place and uh, from around. So uh, you just got to try and manage as best you can. I always predicted that the fire wouldn't get to my place because it never got there in '65, but. Um, you're trying to tell other people that they won't get there, you know. It, uh, you just got to go with it, yeah. So we've got out of it again, yeah. Everything's fine at your place? Everything's fine, yep. Uh, what about the area? Is everyone has a... Yeah, I haven't uh, spoke... To, there was a bloke I know, he got a little bit of grassland burnt further out of Stockdale, which is about 25 minutes from me. But apart from that, uh, that, most of the other stuff was in the plantations. When farming got bad, you know, people sold out, and then there's a lot of blue gums and pine plantation out there and a bit of natural bush so it was all in that so they couldn't get to it you know can't get to it it comes out in the open country there you go that is an interesting insight into the passion for shearing at the moment shearing instructors Stuart Neal and Tom Kelly both speaking to Eden Hennon and they're at the Elmore Field Days I hope the Field Days went well it was their 60th anniversary this year from Tuesday to Thursday uh, at that site in Elmore I hope it went well if you went out there we'll be back with you next week on the Country Hour. I hope you can join us then. Until then, have a safe weekend wherever you are and whatever you're doing, and we'll catch you soon.